You're listening to Indigenous Boom, a podcast by the Atlantic Policy Congress of First Nation Chief Secretariat, featuring conversations on Indigenous health, education, and economic prosperity. Now your host, Krista Thompson. I'm your host, Krista Thompson. I'm the director of the Atlantic Aboriginal Economic Development Integrated Research Program here at the Atlantic Policy Congress of First Nation Chiefs. Today I'm going to talk to Fred Bergman. He is from the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council, and he just completed the study, The Economic Cost of COVID-19 on Indigenous Farms and Communities. Welcome, Fred. What would you say surprised you the most about the research? Yeah, a few of the things was the fact that, you know, the, it was clear that the First Nation businesses were impacted uh, to a higher degree than the non-Indigenous businesses. So we saw um, a larger impact on sales revenues. Uh, for example, I think about 43% of the businesses we talked to uh, in First Nations communities um, experienced uh, about 43% experienced one half or more drop in sales uh, at the height of the pandemic uh, versus um, non-indigenous businesses in the rest of the Atlantic region experienced about a 30% drop. Uh, and the same was true of uh, employment as well. Uh, there was a larger impact on employment also um, uh, in the uh, indigenous businesses versus the non-indigenous businesses in the region. About 35% of Atlantic First Nation businesses laid off one half or more of their staff at the height of the pandemic uh, versus about 19% uh, for Atlantic businesses in general. Uh, and so there was a larger impact there also. And the other thing that came out of the report was I think about 8% uh, of Indigenous businesses uh, felt that they could last uh, another year uh, without further support. Uh, whereas about 40% of Atlantic businesses felt they could last a year uh, without further supports. Um, so obviously, you know, there was more Indigenous businesses teetering on the edge a little bit uh, because of that. In terms of the infrastructure of communities, how prepared are they for the, for the changes um, in doing business and, and all of that? Yeah, well, certainly there's a lot of... Um, infrastructure issues that they had to address. Uh, I think in the report, we estimate that just under $50,000 on average had to be spent uh, on PPE, so personal protective equipment. Uh, and this would include like, um, you know, plexiglass as well and changes to the layouts of businesses, you know, widening the aisles and, and putting stickers for social distancing or physical distancing, uh, masks, uh, shields, uh, cleaning supplies, uh, security, uh, and so on some of the, the businesses uh, to deal with that. So there's the PPE infrastructure uh, and some of its physical infrastructure, like plexiglass, for example, or, or moving things around. Uh, and the other infrastructure probably need that will come out of this will be the requirement for more investment in digital technology, including e-commerce. So the ability to sell online, uh, because we saw nationally about a doubling uh, of e-commerce activity uh, in May versus February uh, of this year uh, in terms of e-commerce sales. Uh, and we're still seeing higher than normal uh, e-commerce sales, uh, e even in the latest data, uh, although it's not quite as high as it was back in May uh, relative to February, uh, but it's still higher than normal uh, pre-pandemic. So certainly there's going to be infrastructure requirements in that respect. We also see, saw a delay in, in capital projects. Uh, as well as a result of the pandemic. 
so a lot of the communities we we interviewed uh, talked about uh, capital project delays, and I think it was at least three quarters of the communities or more, it might even 90 percent. Uh, they pretty well all had uh, uh, delays in capital projects. So that infrastructure, whether it's housing or roads or water and sewer uh, or new uh, buildings, um, that can, you know schools uh, and so on, that can uh, delay economic activity in the community. Uh, and as long as the pandemic continues, that infrastructure could be delayed even further. So the <clears throat> the amount of money though that um, that was provided by ISK was barely a drop in the bucket to to meet the needs of these infrastructure changes i guess you could say right or yeah the, the funding i think they initially provided to uh, atlantic first nations communities in total it worked out to about 20 million dollars in the first round uh and that would include uh, uh about, i think it was about 10.6 million dollars uh for first nations communities uh excluding the Natsivik government, which got another $5.4 million, plus about $4.1 million uh, for off-reserve uh, First Nations people uh, in the Atlantic region. So just over $20 million in total. Now, of course, uh, since that initial round, they doubled um, uh, the Indigenous Community Support Fund from about $305 million nationally to about $610 million but we don't know how much the Atlantic region will receive from that uh, doubling. But the, the standard assumption would be a, a further doubling of that 20 million, shall we say, uh, 40 million. But um, according to our report, we estimated that they would even have to double that again uh, to be something more reasonable to help fund things like infrastructure, uh, community services like social services, health and education, uh, culture and recreation. Uh, and so on, just so um, the communities could kind of withstand the large drop in own source revenues that they're encountering as a result of the pandemic. And I, I know that there was a lot of layoffs that happened. Can you talk about the layoffs in the community? Yeah, some of the communities uh, that we talked to, they had, they had laid off one half or more of their staff. Uh, and, and that wasn't the same in, in every community, but it was certainly significant. Uh, in my recollection, in, in Member 2, for example, they laid off about 240 staff, I think, at, at the height of the pandemic. Uh, I know when we spoke to uh, St. Mary's First Nation, they had laid off about half of their staff, including at community-owned businesses. Now, some of the communities maintained their band offices uh, during the height of the pandemic, uh, but most of the staff were working remotely. So not a lot of the communities actually laid off band office staff, although there was the odd one. Uh, but certainly at the community-owned businesses, there was uh, significant layoffs. Uh, and, and the businesses we interviewed in general, uh, including the private indigenous businesses, um, they also had layoffs. Uh, and as I said earlier, uh, you know, um, uh, I think it was 35% um, of Atlantic First Nation businesses uh, of all types, privately owned or community owned, uh, laid off one half or more of their staff uh, during the pandemic. The businesses that closed, were there a lot of businesses that didn't reopen? That's hard to say. Uh, of the businesses we interviewed, uh, almost two-thirds had to close for one quarter or more, uh, and that would be three months or more. Uh, how many of them are permanently closed? We didn't kind of do a follow-up to get at that or to try to assess it, 
Now, obviously, some sectors like indigenous tourism, you know, the, the, the season might have been a, almost a complete write-off, uh, and therefore they didn't open at all. Um, uh, I know uh, some of the gaming facilities, they eventually did reopen, but at lower capacity, so at 50% capacity. And, and in most of the provinces, that would have started to happen around June, um, you know, sometime during June or even into early July in, in the odd case. Uh, but they obviously operated at lower capacity. Uh, when they did reopen um, so you know you kind of have to look at a case by case basis I think probably the majority of the businesses we open but with some exceptions and the same would be the case for indigenous restaurants you know that they would have had to open uh, depending on the rules in each province uh, potentially at lower capacity so some of the provinces have limitations on the number of people that can be seated uh, while others have uh, limitations on the number of people that can be within the restaurant in, in total uh, so uh, mo- most in general are operating at 50% capacity as well. Would you say that the tourism industry in Atlantic Canada would be the probably the hardest hit? It certainly is one of them. Uh, we know gaming got hit hard. That's pretty obvious. Fishing got hit hard. Um, you know, the expectation is um, uh, Atlantic First Nations fisheries revenues could decline by as much as $100 million this year, which is roughly half of what they would normally collecting revenues so that's definitely a significantly hit industry uh, just because it is such a large share uh, of indigenous economic activity uh, but tourism is significant also um, I would say there would be a bit of an impact on construction as well uh, because of those like projects maybe not as big as fishing uh, gaming and, and tourism um, and, and we know like food services and hospitality in general would be impacted so some of the communities had hotels uh, and the hotels might have had to shut down or are now operating with less people staying there. So there's less occupancy, uh, less uh, less capacity at the restaurants. Um, that's definitely impacting those industries as well. So it's fairly broad-based. Uh, and, and there would be less activity uh, in retail as well. Uh, some of it due to the community checkpoints, uh, therefore less foot traffic into the communities. So less people buying gas, less people buying groceries, uh, um, uh, cultural goods uh, and, and tobacco and so on right um, uh, so there would be uh, less people just shopping in general uh, because of that uh, the checkpoints in the report you talked about how there were some businesses that pivoted and to meet the the new needs of of what is going on now so I think there was somebody who was doing hand sanitizer or PPE yeah, there was at least one business doing PPE, and uh, in the report, like we we have to protect confidentiality, so we can't uh, disclose what that business uh, is or who they are. Uh, but certainly, yeah, they're producing hand sanitizer uh, for some of the, the grocery store chains. Uh, at least one of the um, uh, at least one of the, uh, the uh, financial institutions in Canada. And they were also they had also uh, obtained a permit to export to the, some U.S. businesses as well. So they're not, not just selling it uh, in Canada uh, at grocery stores and or pharmacies, uh, but they were in uh, a financial institution, but they were also supplying it uh, to the U.S. marketplace as well. Uh, and I know that some of the communities uh, began um, having some of their elders and others in the community uh, knit, uh, knit or, or make masks uh, and so on, you know, like the cloth face masks as an example. Yes, yes, I, I remember seeing that. Given everything in the Indigenous economy right now, um, with COVID 
and with the, the hit on own source revenues, do you think it's a good time for Indigenous businesses to start looking at government procurements and tenders? Yeah, so certainly, certainly in the report we had talked about uh, the potential for um, Indigenous businesses to be more uh, uh, involved uh, in supply chains, including government procurement as well. Uh, and I know we had hinted at a set-aside for Indigenous businesses, uh, including the provision of PPE. Um, and, and I know the Atlantic Policy Congress for First Nation Chief Secretary was leaning towards having an 8% set-aside target. I don't think we had a target officially in the report, but we did uh, recommend that there should be a, a set-aside target uh, that uh, governments should shoot for. Now, I know the federal government has, um, has a procurement strategy for Aboriginal business doesn't necessarily have a set-aside target per se, uh, but a lot of the provinces still don't have uh, Indigenous government procurement uh, in a formal manner, uh, but should they have uh, in order to kind of stimulate um, uh, the recovery in Indigenous communities and businesses? Absolutely, for sure, because there's so many opportunities um for indigenous people to participate and they don't have to be big corporations they can be very small right yeah that's correct uh, and it's obvious from even our previous work uh, in a study we did last year that indigenous businesses are part of the supply chain they are not just selling to, to people they're selling to other businesses uh, and they're purchasing from other businesses as well so they're, they're contributing to the uh, regional economy the national economy and even the global economy so you know there are businesses that are exporting to other countries as well so they're an integral part of the overall supply chain uh, and anytime we can engage them in the opportunities to procure you know what procurement would do effectively is grow their sales and marketing base uh, and eventually help the business scale up and as these businesses scale up and become larger at that point then they can start exporting to other provinces or other countries uh, so it helps kind of kickstart their growth uh, so government procurement is probably integral uh, to helping them scale up uh, to become export ready. Uh, but that's something that takes time, obviously. Definitely. And there's lots of resources out there to get export ready and to be part of the procurement strategy. And a lot of people just need to talk to their economic development officers because they have a direct line to those resources. Yeah, exactly. Like they can help connect them with people at Export Development Canada, for, for example, uh, to assist with, uh, with exporting. Uh, they can help connect them to the trade commissioner service uh, to to assist them with exporting because there's trade commissioners in different countries uh, and even now there's a bit more focus to sell within Canada because of the pandemic uh, but they can assist with that as well putting them in contact with the right people uh, advising them of programs that they might be able to take advantage of now as you said earlier like not every business is, is large uh, and, and some will grow, are probably already going to stay small, small so you know, there's a place for everybody. Uh, you know, it's whatever the shoe if the shoe fits, then wear it. So some businesses are going to stay small and they're not looking to export. So I understand that. APEC understands that. But for those that want to grow their business uh, and, and want to kind of excel as an entrepreneur, uh, there's opportunities out there for them to take advantage of. Um, given uh, the funding, we we did see you did say that it was doubled. But the, there is a need for it to double again. Do you um, do you see that as something that government is going to do? Are they coming up with another plan, another package 
for the second wave? One positive development I did see since the study, and and whether or not you know the APEC report contributed that, was that they recently increased funding for what's called the CEBA, the Canada Emergency Business Account. Now, originally that funding was forty thousand dollars in total, with a ten thousand dollar non-repayable contribution. Now, there's a similar program administered by Olaway, uh, which has the same specifications in terms of, you know, maximum $40,000 funding, uh, including a $10,000 non-repayable contribution, if you meet specific criteria and or guidelines. But the two programs are effectively a mirror of one another. Um, and so the fact that they increase SEBA, um, I don't know if that means also they, they're going to increase the Olaway funding as well uh, through NACA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would hope they would, uh, but that's a step in the right direction. So what they did effectively, Krista, is they increased that funding by twenty thousand dollars, so from forty thousand to sixty thousand, and one half of that twenty thousand dollars can be a non-repayable contribution. So now ten thousand of that uh, will be non-repayable if they meet certain criteria. Now that benefits all businesses, the SEBA, uh, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, uh, but Olawake has a similar program, and so the federal government eventually provides additional funding to NACA, uh, maybe the Olaway program will continue to mirror SEBA. I hope that is the case. I don't know for sure, but it's a step in the right direction. There's been some other programs that have been announced that would benefit all businesses, uh, including the extension of the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. Uh, recently, they um, created a new Canada Emergency Rent Subsidy uh, that could benefit all businesses as well. Um, so there's some enhancements, but not all of them are specific to Indigenous communities and businesses. At this point, it's too early to say whether or not Indigenous Services Canada will, will increase um, the Indigenous Community Support Fund. I think if COVID-19 continues into next year, at some point they'll have no choice but have to. Uh, but right now it's a kind of wait and see. Um, I was on their, uh, on their site today looking to see if there was any new announcements and I did not see any um, but I know it takes time for programs to roll out uh, or changes to be made uh, but hope we can only hope uh, that they recognize that more needs to be done I, and I, I we did talk about infrastructure um, but rural broadband seems to be a, a challenge for a lot of our indigenous communities given their geographic location have you heard anything about maybe Bell or the provinces investing in that infrastructure? Yeah, certainly all, all four provinces would be investing in, in increasing bar, uh, rural broadband. I think they're targeting 15 um, um, megabytes per second uh, across the provinces. You know, the feds have put money into it. The provinces have put money into it. Uh, I know Nova Scotia uh, a couple of years ago uh, announced a significant portion uh, of the government surplus um, at that time be allocated towards uh, extending rural broadband. They are trying to kind of expedite that. I mean, it's been the rollouts, uh, it takes time. You know, it would normally take a few years to do that uh, or more. Uh, and during the pandemic, they recognized the increase in e-commerce and the need to stay connected with family and friends uh, for your well-being. Uh, but also to do business, to order online, uh, as opposed to going out to reduce your physical distancing and self-isolate. So they recognize the importance of having that broadband access. Uh, But longer run, it will benefit the economy as well, obviously having that rural broadband access. I think it is coming. 
it's it's still another year or so away, obviously, to kind of get to that level. Uh, and some communities are more challenging than others just because of their remoteness uh, and, and, the, and the options for, for bringing up uh, their speeds. And, and each province is kind of has its own programs and, and dealing with separate um, suppliers uh, to do that, uh, to assist with that rural broadband rollout. Uh, but it certainly is a work in progress for sure. It was a work in progress before the pandemic, uh, but the pandemic has kind of kind of heightened the necessity to speed up that uh, rollout. Um, does that include indigenous communities? Because I thought when they first introduced broadband, they would just kind of skip over indigenous communities um, because they had to pay for the, or the communities had to pay for that infrastructure. Yeah, that I'm not sure of. I didn't, I've never kind of delved that deep into the agreements and, and the funding programs to see, um, you know, which communities, exactly what communities are targeting. I know as they roll it out, it's just kind of one community or certain communities at a time in certain sections of provinces. Uh, and I know some areas are going to be, the remote areas are going to be uh, a totally different ball game. Like you can't always just build uh, towers to deal with that or piggyback off existing towers. Maybe you need to rely more on satellite uh, and so on to do it. But And obviously those options start to get more expensive. Uh, Definitely. So that creates other issues uh, in terms of funding it. Uh, but I don't know about the indigenous communities in particular, how the role of, uh, impacts them versus non-indigenous communities. I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of those specifics. Yeah, that's um, something definitely we'll, we'll talk more about um, in future podcasts. Because it's really, I think, really important for our communities to get that access to the broadband. Yeah, I, I don't dispute that. I totally agree uh, <laughs> that it's important for all communities, uh, First Nations uh, and non-Indigenous communities, to have uh, equal access at the end of the day uh, for all. Uh, and, and, of course, broadband is only one area where, where Indigenous communities uh, don't have kind of um, uh, that level playing field, shall we say. Okay, so it looks like, based on currently what's happening October 30th, that the pandemic is still going strong, and a lot of provinces across Canada are in their second wave. What should we be looking at with the second wave coming to get prepared and to, to move forward? Well, certainly public health funding is going to uh, play part of that, and, and I know in the initial round, uh, nationally, they provided $385 million uh, towards the public health response uh, for First Nations communities. Uh, and that's certainly a, a good first step uh, and fairly significant amount of funding. Uh, there was funding provided also for on-reserve income assistance, uh, you know, to assist uh, those that might have lost their job uh, because of the pandemic. You know, if they couldn't take advantage of CERB. Let's say, uh, for example, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or they didn't qualify for employment insurance. Um, you know, maybe they were self-employed and didn't pay into EI, so didn't qualify for that either. Uh, but hopefully, many of them did still qualify for CERB. But there's always exceptions to that because maybe they just were not in the workforce at all uh, prior to the pandemic, and therefore they have to fall back on social assistance uh, more than EI or CERB. Uh, so certainly some of those programs, having that funding available go forward is going to be important beyond the, the, the public health issue uh, and, and funding for that if, if the pandemic does continue. Uh, and certainly there, there, there's room for more funding for PPE uh, under the public health funding. Um, and I go back to the fact that, you know, on average, the, the communities uh, or the businesses, I should say, had to spend about $50,000 uh, on the PPE. 
PPE up to that point that we were doing the research. Uh, and as long as COVID-19 continues, they're going to continue to have to spend. Now, they might have to spend more money on plexiglass, but they're still going to need masks. Uh, they're still going to need um, um, sanitizers and, and cleaning fluids um, and security and so on. So there's going to be ongoing costs that they have related to the pandemic. Uh, and so those costs will need to be covered. I think going forward, you know, there's going to be a necessity for more investment skills and education. And I know they did provide funding for post-secondary education as part of the response uh, to COVID-19. Uh, but we know there's going to be a lot of people that are laid off uh, or displaced uh, from their employment because of COVID-19, and some of those jobs will not return. Uh, so there will be permanent job loss, and people may need to retrain uh, for a different occupation um, uh, or, or have a new skill set uh, to work in a different industry. And so um, investment uh, there is important, not, and not just for young people uh, or middle-aged pe- uh, workers, uh, but also for older workers as well. Um, and so, you know, PSC, post-secondary education is not always the right fit for everyone, depending on where they're at in their career. Uh, so that's where skills development becomes more relevant um, to help them kind of uh, uh, change occupations effectively. Uh, I think also uh, we've seen an increase in remote working uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, as soon as you have access to rural broadband, uh, we also saw the increase in e-commerce, uh, and, and so you know what can be done to um, uh, accommodate people working remotely in Indigenous communities, uh, and so it's important to have opportunities to do that, uh, to give them that opportunity to kind of continue to work while working from home, uh, if they have to social distance or, or self-isolate in this case. Uh, the other thing is we know that you know we need more investments in automation go forward. Uh, because if workers in, in, in plants and offices have to social distance more or work remotely, uh, that kind of means automation could assist with that. Uh, because with automation, you would have less people at the plant or less people at the office. Um, and, and so that can assist. Uh, and just go forward, because of the large hit to own source revenues, you know, uh, in our report, we forecast that own source revenues in the communities could decline by as much as 40% this year. Uh, but that number could increase over time uh, if things worsen in the second wave. Uh, and, and we don't know at what point the pandemic is going to end, uh, but we have to be looking forward. So it's important to also have a First Nation strategy for economic recovery. Uh, like how do we how do we come out of this and what do we do to stimulate that recovery, whether that's invest in infrastructure to create jobs, whether that's in, uh, to invest in rural broadband so companies can sell online or, or workers can work remotely. Uh, wherever those investments and spending need to be to help stimulate that recovery. Thank you so much, Fred, for speaking with us today. We appreciate all your hard work on this report, The Economic Cost of COVID-19 on Indigenous Communities and Firms. For more information on the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council, check out their website, www.apec-econ.ca forward slash indigenous for their latest reports. You can also check out our website apcfnc.ca forward slash economic forward slash research hyphen reports forward slash. Thank you for listening to Indigenous Boom, the new podcast from the Atlantic Policy Congress of First Nation Chiefs Secretariat.